Good morning, church family. Uh, it's so, so good to be with you again. Um, I heard from a number of you that the midweek message this week was really, really helpful and it deeply resonated with you. Um, as you know, I talked about grieving our losses well uh, this past uh, week. And there are a number of losses that we just need to name, loss of routine, loss of normalcy, loss of jobs, even loss of health and a number of losses. But one of the losses that I think that deeply resonated with a lot of us uh, was loss of community. And uh, we're realizing that we're fundamentally created for community, you know. Um, have you thought about why solitary confinement is a form of, actually of punishment and of torture? It's because it's so unnatural for a human being to be alone without any sense of community. And um, this may sound sort of sobering, but the reality is many of us today find ourselves in sort of a state of involuntary, solitary confinement. And we're recognizing just how deeply our souls need and long for a community. We can't live without it. We can't help wanting to be together. And I've said to you guys a number of times that if you live today like you don't need anybody, there comes a time when we actually get to prove it later. And it's times like this when we realize that the people that we invest in today are the people that are going to invest in us tomorrow. Community is like the air that we breathe. You know, we don't appreciate as we walk around air until we're underwater. And as I constantly remind us, we don't appreciate community until we find ourselves emotionally under. But we don't, if we don't have built-in community, like now, it's too late when circumstances and situations arise when we need community to support us. I feel like times like this don't necessarily create community in as much as they reveal the kind of community that we already have. And I've asked this question, who will carry you? Who will carry you? Do you have people in your life who care so much about you because of the investment that you've made in their lives that when situations and circumstances arise for people to carry you, that you have them to carry you through it? We long for community and community is at the core of so much of who we are and what we're about. And I just pray that even as you grieve the loss of community well, that you take advantage of various situations and opportunities you have for community to be there to support you and for you to be community to someone else who might need you. Uh, uh, this morning's sermon title is a fearless church, a fearless church. One of my favorite authors of all time, A.W. Tozer said this, a scared world needs a fearless church. A scared world needs a fearless church. Why did the early church go out during pandemics and bring in the sick and the dying and care for them even at the risk of their own lives? Why did the early church, as we'll see, give their, of their lives and material resources radically in a way that was absolutely just unimaginable for people of their world. It's because at the end of the day, they were what I would call fearless. They were a group of fearless people. Because central to their conviction and our conviction, of course, is that Jesus died and rose again, defeating Satan's sin and death. And they knew that if Jesus had risen from the dead, and he has, 
that this isn't the only world we're ever going to have. This isn't the body we're only ever going to have. And this isn't the only life we're ever going to have. The resurrection is coming. Jesus made sure of that. Do you know how much more courageous you would be? Do you know how much more generous you and I would be? Do you know how much more radically we would live our lives if we really believe this truth that we are resurrection people? We would be fearless. The world needs a fearless church more than ever now, church family, because we are living in a time of enormous need. COVID-19 has caused millions of people to be underemployed or unemployed. There is a time coming, if not yet already, where people are literally struggling to pay rent or even put food on their table. And it's an enormous opportunity to for the church to rise up and be the church. I believe that adversity gives birth to greatness. Greater the challenge, the greater the opportunity. And history shows us, you see, throughout history, whenever social conditions were the most desperate, it's when Christians stepped up and lived lives of radical generosity, radical sacrificial love that the world took notice and it spread like wildfire. I've read some church history and Julian was emperor during the third century Roman Empire and Julian wanted to wipe out Christianity from the face of the Roman Empire. He instituted pagan worship and built elaborate temples and hopes of reviving paganism. But Christianity, Christianity spread like wildfire. Why? Not because our worship services were better, not because our buildings were better, in his own words, Julian said, their success lies in their charity to all. Charity to all. They take care of not only their own poor, but ours as well. Do you know that he said that in the year of 252 AD when a plague hit the city of Carthage and Christians went out of their way, risking their own lives to take care of the sick and the needy. You know, as we continue our series on discipleship, follow me, we're going to spend the next few weeks talking about radical generosity. And I can't think of a, a more pertinent, uh, relevant topic than this. In a world where, where fear and panic and self-preservation is kicked in, where people are hoarding things and people are just responding out of a scarcity mentality, what an opportunity for the church. What an opportunity for you and I, followers of Jesus, to display to the world how Jesus makes a difference and how we go about living our lives. Instead of self-preservation, we follow the one who said, we lay down our lives for another. Instead of hoarding, we give ourselves and what we have radically, generously. But you can't do this without community. You and I, in order to do this, have to be deeply connected to other followers of Jesus and the family of God. Following Jesus, living the way of Jesus, requires that we are a vital part of a kingdom community. The beginning text, if you have your Bibles, I want you to open it and follow along as I read. The beginning text, we're going to look at two texts today, is Luke chapter 12, verse 31. Jesus says, but seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Verse 32, do not be afraid. Now mark that, underline that, remember that. He says, don't be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Verse 33, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Now check this out. Jesus says, the father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. And then right away he turns around and he says, what? He says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. 
Church family, why do we give? Jesus tells us. So that we could enter the kingdom? No. He says, your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. You're in already by grace. You're in. You're already in. You're already accepted. Listen, whether you and I give radically and generously doesn't change one iota how God feels about us. But I'll tell you this. Whether we give generously or not says a ton about whether you've experienced the gospel of grace. The other thing that Jesus actually does here is he completely revolutionizes the way that people thought about generosity. See, good, good Jews, Jesus' listeners, would have known that the Old Testament standard of giving was the tithe, right? People gave 10% of what they earned. But Jesus comes here and he completely revolutionizes that when he says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Now listen, church, king, in the kingdom, people, kingdom people, it's not about equal giving. It's about equal sacrifice. See, see, in the kingdom, for some, giving 2% of their income is, is, is enormous sacrifice. It's, it's going without things that some of us just take for granted. And then for some of us, frankly, giving 10%, let's be really honest, hardly impacts how we live. And Jesus says, here's what kingdom people do. Kingdom people give sacrificially. That means kingdom people are willing to lower their lifestyle so that they have more to give. Kingdom people are willing to sacrifice and give until it actually hurts. That's what kingdom people do. Which some of us are going, there's no way. There's no way I can do that. Do you know why? See, Jesus already knew that, that, that we would say that. That's why in the opening verses here, he begins by saying, don't be, uh, do you remember? He says, don't be afraid. The reason why we're afraid, the reason why we, 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 we don't give radically to the extent that Jesus says is because I believe for some of us and many of us perhaps, it's not greed, it's fear. This section in Luke 12 comes after a long series of teaching where Jesus talks about worry. See, see, before the verses we read, Jesus says things like, don't worry about what you'll eat, what you'll drink, what you'll wear, because your Father, your Heavenly Father, will take care of you. So seek His kingdom first, and all these things will be added to you as well. See, I believe, church, that the many, there are many reasons why we're not more generous, for for many of us, it's fear. We're afraid. It's Fear that causes many of us to, what I would say, what if our way out of being more generous? What if I lose my job? What if the economy turns? What if the support dries up? What if an unexpected pandemic hits? See, money is deeply tied to many of us to our sense of security. It's how we try and control manage circumstances in a seemingly uncontrollable world. But man, if we're learning anything, church, it's that the biggest savings account in the world, it can't stop unexpected pandemics. It can't stop traffic accidents. It can't stop cancer. See, money can't buy you security. It's an illusion for us to think that if I just have enough, I'll be Secure, And if we need a proof of that, just look at the world that we're living through right now. 
This is why Jesus goes on in verse 33. He says, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. Money can't give you what only God can give you. Jesus saying God is the only certainty and security you'll ever have. God is the only hope, only love, only certainty because no one could ever break in on God. That is what Jesus is saying. Uh, listen, before we continue, and we're going to talk more about this in the upcoming weeks, but I I'm just here to tell you that, that, that you can't outgive God. You and I can't outgive God. God even, there's a passage I'll read. God dares you and me say, test me in this. Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, Jesus says, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. Listen, I've been a pastor for a few years, and I've never met a single person to this day who said that they became poor because they gave generously to the poor and to God's kingdom purposes in the world. Never. But I've met a number of people who thought to themselves, I know best and I know what I need to do and made terrible decisions financially and relationally and wound up experiencing the consequences of that. God has shown me over the years that he takes care of his people. And sometimes he takes care of it in miraculously, supernaturally, in a way that, that, that I, can't, I can't explain. Like, like, you know, a check shows up in the mail for the exact amount of rent or a group of people uh, decide to, 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 to support somebody in ways that they didn't even see coming. God does. He takes care of people miraculously. But that isn't the only way that God says we should be unafraid to give. And that's the whole point of this text. In Luke 12, Jesus is addressing a community, not individuals. He says, don't be afraid, little what? Little flock. I've said this over and over again. You can't read the Bible individualistically. The 70% 70, 70 of the New Testament is written to groups of people. And that's why the commands are in the plural. The Bible doesn't make any sense to you if you read it by yourself, for yourself, because it's written to groups of people. And the same here. We read Luke 12 and we think somehow, you know, God, God, will, God will meet our needs in a supernatural way. Check in the mail, we win the lottery. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying here that it's being a part of a kingdom community that enables you to give without fear. Let me say it again. It's being a part of a kingdom community that enables you to give without fear. See, another, in another place, Jesus says this. Mark chapter 10, verse 29. I'll tell you the truth. No one who has left homes or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and the fields, and in the age to come eternal life. See, we know what some of those things mean, right? I mean, being a Christian might mean that you lose your natural family, mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. But you and I both know that when you come into the family of God, you get those things back and then some. But we can't just stop with the family. We tend to see the family, but Jesus also says here that you get fields and homes 
as well. We can't view being a part of the kingdom community as just, just be receiving family, new family members, without taking into consideration what Jesus also promises. What is he saying? He says being a kingdom community means we not only get family, but listen to this church, we also share in our possessions. Now this is so powerful and you're mind-boggling to me. It's going to take some time for it to sink in, so we're going to spend some more time unpacking it. Jesus literally saying, the reason why you and I can give radically when there are needs is because it's assumed that that same kingdom community will take care of you when you and I have needs. That's why we don't have to be afraid to give. And that's just... That's just so mind-boggling to me. And yet we'll see that's what's happening in the early church. They're giving radically generously to meet needs because the kingdom community is taking care of them. This means that you and I have to be a part of a community where the gospel has so humbled us that you're willing to let people know that you're in need. And I've said to you over and over again, if you're like me, you hate asking people for help. Being in need and asking for help is not a sign of weakness. There's nothing to be embarrassed about. Acknowledging our need is an act of humility before God and before others. It's good to acknowledge, even during this time, even our stresses. It's, it's okay to, to say, I'm stressed out. Can you help? But it also means that the gospel has so transformed you and me that we're freed from greed and fear so we can give radically. Now, we're just going to spend a little bit of time looking at two passages in the book of Acts and unpacking a little bit why they weren't fearful. And again, we're going we're gonna to come back to these passages some more in the upcoming weeks. Acts 2 and Acts 4. Acts 2 and Acts 4, okay? We're going to look at a snapshot of why they were radically generous, okay? And, 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 and we'll uh, draw some implications. Acts chapter 2. We've looked at this, so I won't spend a lot of time on it. Verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Verse 45. They sold their property and possessions. Oh, <laughs> just the thing that Jesus told, told us to do. They sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Verse 47. Praising God and enjoying the favor of the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Their radical generosity was the reason why people are coming to Jesus. They're preaching his credibility because the watching world sees in reality their faith. Radical generosity is making God's love for them and us tangible. Church family, people may doubt what you and I say, but they will always believe what you and I do. Always. How will the watching world know the love of our Lord Jesus, who those he was, though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich? Because the early Christians are displaying that love. How? By their radical generosity. It showed the world that something powerful had happened to them. When the first century saw the early Christians living their lives of radical generosity, it made their witness credible. You know, it's really difficult to dislike somebody who is radically generous with you. It's really hard to dislike somebody who's going out of the way to serve you, who's willing to give the shirt off their back for you. And I wonder if there's any correlation between the lack of radical generosity among American Christians and the lack of credibility in our witness. 
Acts chapter 4 is the other passage. Acts chapter 4, verse 31. It says, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Say that with me. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. No, I really mean that. I need you to do it with me, okay? They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. They shared everything they had. By the way, for anybody thinking that uh, this was some sort of a foresharing of possessions and resources, the grammar in Greek clearly indicates that it was volitional. They were willing to do it. Verse 33, when great with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all, there was absolutely no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned land or houses, here they go again, sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Verse 36, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, sold the field that he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, listen. What's so intriguing about this text is that the sharing of wealth and goods is happening across social classes. Now church, check this out. The text tells us that there are people who own lands and homes. And these are clearly wealthy people because very few people own lands and homes. And clearly they were also the poor who are receiving the money collected from the sales. So the well-off and the needy, the rich and the poor are in one place. And in case you're thinking they're just sitting down and worshiping together, no, Luke, when he says that they were one in heart and mind, he deliberately uses a Greek word for intimate friendship. Aristotle and many of the Greek philosophers said that this kind of friendship, they're adamant, could only occur among social equals. This, this is not possible among people of different socioeconomic status. And that is yet clearly what is happening here. What is happening here is what Paul says in Galatians 3. There will neither be Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, female nor male. They're all one in Christ Jesus. You guys, remember what we talked about? This, is a, this picture isn't just something for us to aspire to. This is what becomes of the church when the Holy Spirit is powerfully at work. Loving unity among different people, along with radical generosity, as we'll see, is the evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work. It authenticates the work of the Holy Spirit. An experience of the Spirit doesn't just take you deeper into God. It takes you deeper into community among especially people who are unlike you and me. There's absolutely nothing miraculous about us loving people that are just like us, racially and culturally and generationally and socioeconomically. What is miraculous is when there is this kind of community among social and racial barriers. And let's just state the obvious, church family. Apart from the Holy Spirit supernaturally producing in us the fruit of the Spirit, this is impossible. And yes, in the same way, by the same power of the Holy Spirit, this church was uh, uh, created, this multi-ethnic community was created. We need the same Holy Spirit for this community to begin to love like Scripture tells us to love. See, when the Holy Spirit came down, racial barriers, social barriers were absolutely broken down. Is it happening here? Is that happening here? 
Is there community happening among people that are not like us? Of course it's hard, of course it's challenging, and of course it's uncomfortable. But aren't those the exact same times when we grow the most? What's our stake is our very mission to be a city within a city. Our corporate life is a vivid demonstration of the gospel. We are reconciled to be reconcilers. Is that happening here among class barriers and racial barriers? Okay, I'll sort of end, end with this, okay? Because what I really want to focus on is why were they so radically generous? Why were they so radically generous? It is for the same reason that there was a kind of oneness. The Bible tells us, and I had you repeat it, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. What, it, what is being filled with the Holy Spirit, if anything, to do with this kind of radical generosity? Listen, I am planning weeks-long sermon series on the Holy Spirit. If CC was here, he'd be like, hey, or say amen, and you can do the same thing. And I hope you look forward to that. And I'm going to say a lot more than, so let me just, let me just succinctly capture the, 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 what I want to talk about just for here. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is not to be zapped by some force, because the Holy Spirit is a person. Remember that. Okay. Secondly, to be filled with the Holy Spirit and it's, also ask, it's not also asking Him to come and fill some empty space. He is already here. We have all of Him that we need. We don't need to ask more of Him. What we need to ask is that we would begin to appropriate what we already have. Now, what does the Holy Spirit do? What does it mean to be filled? According to Jesus Himself, John 14, He says, But the Helper, verse 26, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He'll teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. And in John 16, Jesus says, Holy Spirit will glorify me. Now listen, according to Jesus, the main job of the Holy Spirit is to teach us, is to remind us of who God is and what He has done. Now, church, please, please listen to this. When, I, when the scripture says to teach and to remind, it, it's not talking about head knowledge. We already know that. But what the scripture is talking about is making these truths real, making these truths effectual, making these shoes alive in our hearts. It's one thing to know that God is good. It's another thing, though, Psalm 34, 8, to taste and see that the Lord is good. It's one thing to know that you're a child of the Heavenly Father, a son or a daughter of God, and that your Heavenly Father will take care of you. It's another thing, though, Romans 8, 36, for the Spirit to testify with our spirit that we are children of God. It's another for that truth to become so real in our hearts that we are saying, I have been adopted in the family of God. I am a son and a daughter of the Heavenly Father. I am secure. I have blessings that, 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 that the world can't take away. I have a guarantee to rule and reign with Him for all of eternity. It's another thing for the Spirit to teach, to remind that truth to become real in our hearts. Now, why is it so important that we see God for who He is and what He has done? Why is that so important? Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Church, when we see God for who He is, we have heart. And when we have heart, we have hope for things unseen 
with our human eyes. When we can see God for who he is, what faith is, then we have heart. And when we have heart, our hope is stirred for things we can't see. And I want to say to you today, we need hope as much as we need oxygen. See, this is why throughout the New Testament, Paul is constantly saying prayers like this for believers. Ephesians 1:18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. What is he saying? I need you to see God for who he is and what he has done so that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Paul is praying for their eyesight. Paul says, I need you to see. I need you to see the reality of what we hope for. Being filled with the Spirit is not simply getting glory bumps in worship. The Holy Spirit helps you and I to see eyes of our heart being enlightened and opened to see who God is and what he has done. Holy Spirit makes you aware of a larger reality. The Holy Spirit makes you aware not just of what's happening out there in the world, but a larger reality. Let me put it this way. What the Holy Spirit helps you to see is that there is a sovereign Lord. We know what's going on out there. He helps us see that there's a sovereign Lord of history who rules and reigns with all authority. The Holy Spirit helps you to see that he who sits on the throne is absolutely in control and still advancing his kingdom. The Holy Spirit helps you to see that all things work together for good for those who trust him. The Holy Spirit helps you to see that he's got you and I in the palm of his hands and nothing could pluck you and I from it. The Holy Spirit helps you to see that God will fulfill his plans and not even COVID-19 could ruin it. Can I get an amen? And my favorite illustration of this is in the Bible. Prophet Elisha is in Dothan with his servant. And they're surrounded by the Assyrian army. And the, and the servant is climbing up the city walls and he's looking out at the hills. And it's filled with the Assyrian army and their chariots. And he's saying to Elisha, I'm scared, I'm terrified to death. What does Elisha do? Do you know what he does? He prays for his servant for the fullness of his spirit. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17, it says, Then Elisha prayed, Lord, open his eyes and let him see. And the Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. When God opened the servant's eyes, it's not that he no longer saw the Assyrian army. He sees the enemies. He sees the hardship. He sees the difficulties. He sees the challenges. But he sees something bigger. He sees a larger reality. He sees God's chariots. He sees horses and chariots of fire and he realizes that the sovereign Lord is in charge and that things were going to be okay. Are you scared? Are you anxious? Are you worried? 
The fullness of the Spirit, as C.S. Lewis says, is not some frothy joy that helps you forget about what's happening out there. In the face of trouble, in the face of hardship, in the face of trials, being filled with the Holy Spirit gives you and I new eyes to see, a heightened awareness to see a larger reality so that we don't live in denial of what's happening, but we are able to triumph over them. The Holy Spirit helps you and me to see and makes you aware that instead of seeing just what's coming over the newsfeed, we see that there's a sovereign Lord who rules and reigns with all authority. Yes, you and I see the Assyrian army, but we see being filled with the Holy Spirit, God's army and chariots of fire. How strong would you and I be if filled with the Holy Spirit, we saw who God is and what He is doing. You and I would be able to declare, if God is that glorious, if God is that great, what am I worried about? I am His and He is mine. And no matter what happens, I'm going to be all right. I'm going to be all right. Do you know why they were so generous? Because they weren't afraid. They weren't afraid. Church family, are you scared? Are you afraid? And you're trying to, you're trying to manage control, manage outcomes, and find security in our wealth. If anything, our illusion of that has utterly been shattered. But if control is not possible, how do we overcome our fears? Is as we come to see God clearly and experience His limitless goodness, we begin to see that in His world we're perfectly Safe. Our good, good Heavenly Father can be trusted always. And Jesus proved it by trusting His Father even to the point of death, knowing that He would raise Him back to life. Jesus proved that not even grave can separate us from God's love. And if that's true, then we're absolutely safe and we have nothing to fear. Let me end with this illustration. Henry Nouwen saw this truth illustrated when they traveling through South Africa and seeing a trapeze troop. Henry now noticed that while everybody's focused on the flyer and his or her acrobatics, they're not really the star of the performance. Who is the star of the performance? Henry now realizes it's the catcher. It's the catcher. The flyer can only perform his amazing act if he knows he'll be safely caught. And that's what led him to a new understanding of our life with God. And he says, if we are to take risks to be free in the air and life, we have to know that there's a catcher. We have to know that even when we come down from it all, we're going to be caught. We're going to be safe. The great hero is the least visible. So trust the catcher. Faith is the opposite of seeking control. Faith is the will to surrender, church. Faith is believing the promise that no matter what happens, no matter how dangerous the world may appear, God will not let us fall. With that assurance, we're free to let go. We're free to soar. We're free to love. We're free to give generously and radically without limit, knowing that we're going to be okay, even as the world panics during this crisis. We're not afraid. We know that we can trust the catcher. Can you imagine a church where people don't fear the future? Because they're saying, I'm not in control, but I am deeply loved by the one who is. Can you imagine a church where people are so filled with the spirits, they're so kind, so patient, so generous, that they're not, ask, they're not waiting for people to come and ask for help, but they're literally going out saying, is, is, who is in need here? Hey, here, here's stuff. Here's things that I could bring. Yeah, it may mean that I'm not going to be able to do some things that I want to do this year, but, but here's some stuff that I want to bring 
because I want to be helpful to whoever is in need around here. Can you imagine a church where people are going out of their way to give of themselves? That's the kind of church that I believe is possible when the Holy Spirit fills them and us. Will you close your eyes with me? Will you close your eyes with me? I, I want to lead us today in a, in a, in a time of prayer. Uh, wherever you are, sitting in the living room, sitting, in your sitting on your kitchen table, walking around, you might even be driving on your phone, doesn't matter. Where, <laughs> actually, if you're driving, don't close your eyes, keep your eyes open. Wherever you are in a safe place, I want you to close your eyes and I want you to pray with me. I'm wondering if anybody sitting wherever you are this morning, you, you're, you're deeply resonating with what, what I'm sharing. You're, you're, you're afraid. You're anxious. You're worried. Because the world just seems completely out of control and chaotic. Friend, where will you get the courage? Where will you get the courage to be fearless in the midst of it all? I'll tell you where it comes from. If you don't see God for who He is, you will not have faith. And if you don't have faith, you will lose heart. And if you don't have heart, you lose hope. Where will you and I get the ability to see clearly a sovereign God who is in control, who has us in the palm of His hands, who enables us to see beyond the Assyrian armies and the horses and the hills and to see God's army and chariots of fire? We need to, we need to be filled with the Spirit. Say, so Peter, how do we get filled with the Spirit? Right where you are, I want you to do this. I want you to just extend your hand, extend your palm, and I want you to, I want you to say, God, I surrender. See, the fullness of the Spirit comes in our willingness to surrender and to submit. It's not some magic trick, and God doesn't want to withhold this from you or me to us. Fullness of the Spirit comes when you and I say, God, I'm not in control. I, I, I relinquish control, God, and I surrender. Old Testament, the fire of God came and consumed sacrifices. And Paul says in Romans 12, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. That's what we're doing right now. We're going to the altar. And we're saying, God, I'm surrendering myself to you. God, I surrender my fears, my agenda, my goals, my finances. God, I surrender. God, I surrender it all to you. Make yourself a living sacrifice. I'm serious. It, 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 if you've been holding on to your agenda, holding on to your plans, and holding on to whatever, and saying, God, I, I just need you to just, just help me with this, you will not experience the fullness of the Spirit. The fullness of your Spirit comes when you and I surrender, submit, and offer ourselves sacrifices to God. So, friend, with your hands and your palms open right, right there in your living room, Pray right now, Lord, I surrender, I submit. Spirit, will you come and fill me? Spirit, will you come and fill me? I surrender, I submit. I lift up, God, everything that I have, everything that I am to you. Fire of God, come and consume this living sacrifice. Fire of God come and consume this living sacrifice. And yes, will you, as you pray for the fullness of this Spirit, ask the Lord specifically to, to make you fearless. So not just that you would be generous 
with yourself in community, in relationship, but you would also be generous with your wallet, with your resources, your homes, with your stuff. That you would not be afraid and hoard and, and, and function from scarcity mentality, but you'd be fearless and saying, God, I give to you. Whatever you ask, God, I want to give to you. Whatever you ask. Okay, just a few more moments. Church, as you pray, just a few more moments as you pray. Lord, we offer. And Father, we want to be fearless people in a scared world. You're looking for and longing for a fearless church, and that's what we want to be, God. That doesn't just happen automatically. It doesn't happen, God, because we work ourselves up to be fearless. It happens when we're filled with the Spirit and we are able to see clearly who you are and what you are doing. God, will you, will you, God, make us fearless people because we're filled with your Spirit. Help us to submit and to surrender, God, all that we are and all that we have to you, God, in the midst of whatever is going on out there, Lord. Spirit of God, speak clearly to us and tangibly to us and be specific about what it is that we are to give to you, what it is that we are to submit and surrender to you and help us to be obedient, God, and to respond to your call. God, we want to shine brightly in the midst of darkness. We want the city of Chicago to take notice that there is this alternate city in this community that is living, God, reflective of an alternate countercultural kingdom. That is our desire, that is our hope. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen, Amen.